Yeah, that works. Thank you. I'm glad I'm on stage too. No, I'm kidding. It was for them. I get that. Yes. No, I agree. Yes, 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 yes. My final paper at Bethel Theological Seminary was a master's thesis. If I still have it, it's buried somewhere next to a silver baby cup or the first time I was photographed. It was not my first thesis that I actually wrote. Uh, my first thesis was in some ways actually kind of a mess, okay? So we're supposed to summarize like what we know about God in 25 pages or less, right? Well, 25 pages to 30 pages. And I'm like, I mean, it kind of informs how I do life even today. So you want me to summarize God in 25 to 30 pages. I always love encountering people that are so certain about life. And I'm like, how can you be so certain? Is there any epistemological modesty that exists inside of your body at all? Summarizing an infinite God in 25 to 30 pages. You've got to be kidding me, Okay. So I came up with this unifying theme, this organizing idea, how God wanted to be in relationship with his creation, a relational God. It was gooey, okay? I'd be the first to admit it. It was too gooey, okay? And, and, and theological seminaries don't want goo, okay? They want precision. And I'm like, I don't know, can you have precision? My reader, a seminary professor, a PhD, I actually like the guy. I, I love the guy. You want a precision, theological truth, solid answers to the question of life. He rejects my thesis out of hand, like throws it in my face. I'm like, keep in mind, I had worked, I had put the work. Now, there were times where I had turned in papers where I had not worked hard and it showed. Okay, I worked hard on this paper. Part of the work predicated on the idea of how can a finite human, me, really, really be arrogant enough to describe God in 25 pages. But it was rejected. So I learned my lesson. I learned my lesson. I went to the library. I found a variety of theses. How is that the plural of thesis? I'm always confused when there's an S at the end of a word, and then you pluralize that word. You're like, how does that theses, multiple theses? And I read a couple, and then I picked one, right? I copied it word for word. I kid you not, copied it word for word, put my name on the front cover, turned it in. Glowing review. Excellent work, John. Really stepped up your game. And then I said, doctor, and here's where my arrogance comes through, okay? It's not about what I know. It's like, okay, I sprung a perfect trap, right? And then I said, doctor, I won't mention his last name, how come when I actually worked hard on a thesis, I mean, really struggled with it, you were like, this is garbage. And when I went to the library, pulled one off the shelf, copied it word for word, turned it in, you were like, woohoo, good job. And he looked at me like a tired, older dog would look at a puppy. Well, John, I'm sorry that you feel that way. What does that give me? I ended up turning in a third thesis, which actually reflected my work, just so you know I haven't admitted to plagiarism and academic dishonesty some years later. Our text today is in John 3. 
Even if the only service you've ever attended in your life is a football game, you know this verse, or at least where it is, John 3, 16. But let's start two chapters earlier, okay? Because it's Christmas, and we need to have a baby, the esoteric incarnation. Chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Skipping to 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now sometimes, at least in my brain, I I, I get a little confused, right, because there's no mention of a baby, but it's all here. So a little vocabulary lesson to start off the morning. The Word, the way John uses it, capital W, is the second person of the Trinity, is the Son, is the Logos. With me? Word, second person of the Trinity, Son, Logos. Interchangeable. Incarnation literally means in the flesh. So when you say incarnation, you could also say in the flesh, okay? It's not a brand of evaporated milk. The incarnation of the Word, okay, is the incarnation of the Son. So the incarnation of the Word... Incarnation, Word, Incarnation, Son, interchangeable. Incarnation is the second person of the Trinity, the Son, the Word, putting on flesh. The incarnated Word equals the incarnated Son equals the baby Jesus. Still with me. The Word became flesh and dwelt is the same thing as saying the Son was born as a baby, named Jesus by his mom and dad, lived and died and rose again. So prior to the first Christmas, you have the Word, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the Lagos, all interchangeable. After Christmas, here's where we stand. The Word equals the Son, equals Jesus, equals the second person of the Trinity, who is described also as the Messiah, which is the same thing as the Christ, which gets us to today's topic, 16 the verse 16 of chapter 3. And you know it. For God so loved the world. We could even say it together, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved. God loved. God starts from a posture of love. That love allows relationship That love demands thinking in terms of what is best for the created order. That love, anchored in eternity past, means a plan must exist for creation to be loved, creation to be redeemed, creation to be able to make the choice to accept that love or reject that love. More on that later. But the posture starts with love. It's how God looks at humans and creation and how God provides a plan that acts in the best interest of those entities. God loves first. Now, we've defined in the past 17 years, a number of different times, that that love, as the Bible understands love and as it's referred to here, is the total commitment to the betterment of another person. Now, I'm not sure where I first got that definition. I've ripped it off from someone or I've mishmashed it up from a bunch of different folks. I am not claiming it as my own. So as long as I don't claim it as my own, I'm not plagiarizing someone else's work. I just don't know where it came from. But it works. 
Love is the total commitment to the betterment of another person. God loves first. Love is totally committed. God is totally committed to our betterment. We, we think of love so often as sexual. Is there any chance, is there any chance we could move away from that? Okay, since that's not going to happen, let's redefine it here. Love is the total commitment to the betterment of another person. When I ask God for the ability to love Tanya as she deserves to be loved, I don't mean sexual intimacy. And when I ask God for that ability, I'm not asking because Tanya is hard to love. I'm asking because it's hard for me to be loving. If we can do one thing today that would improve our relationships, some exponential factor, maybe even a logarithmic factor, can we ask God for the ability to love, to be totally committed to the betterment of the person sitting next to us? And if there's a not a person sitting next to you, it's okay. You can be committed to the betterment of those that are in your sphere of influence, even if they're not here this morning. When we say God's posture is love, when we think about God as loving, when we think about love, it's relational. It's not sexual. The standard is God's eternal commitment to love. God is eternally committed to the betterment of you and me, to us. Because God's posture is love, then God is willing to make the first move. Think of it as a negotiation, okay? Only unlike a negotiation that you've ever had before, okay? Some of us really like to negotiate in here, right? And you're like, oh, wow, a negotiation. Great, I get to negotiate with God. If you're a hardcore negotiator, this negotiation is really a bit of a yawner, okay? On the other hand, if you hate to negotiate, okay? If you just wish everything was like walking into a grocery store and buying milk where you're like, that'll be, how much does a gallon of milk cost now? Four bucks, three bucks, two bucks, somewhere in there. I feel like a foreign uh, politician who's out of touch with reality. <laughs> that was pretty good, wasn't it? That was right on the spot. It's not even in the notes. <laughs> if, if you'd rather people didn't play games, if you'd rather you didn't have to negotiate, then you're going to like this one. Because God starts with his best, his biggest, most valuable, most costly offer, and puts it right on the table. God doesn't try to lowball, okay? You know the stereotype, right? You walk in with a something, maybe your local pawn shop, or you walk in looking to buy something, something that historically has some space to maneuver, cars, jewelry, houses, boats, salesperson sizes you up. You start negotiating, right? And the salesperson is thinking, are you a lion or are you a lamb? 
And if you're a lion, they make the evaluation. How much am I willing to get beat up because I want this gal to drive my truck? I remember being on a holiday in Bali, okay? We had gone to visit some friends in Indonesia, okay? And we have a long weekend in Bali because why not when you're over there? And then we flew home through Singapore and, and so we're on Bali, right? And we're on the beach and there's these beach vendors, right? And they're selling these, um, these uh, Balinese, I'm sure they got them from China or something, but Balinese uh, pirate ship kites, okay? Black pirate ship kites. Did I say a bad word earlier? No, okay, good. I think they look cool. I think my son Will would like one. So I go down to the beach and I say, how much? And the gentleman says, $6, US dollars. Now, honestly, it's probably worth 50 bucks, right? Because I mean, it's handmade or looks to be handmade and all this kind of stuff, really, really cool. It flies, it works, but I don't want to pay six bucks. He's like, how about five? I'm like, how about four? <laughs> A dollar? <laughs> Seriously? You've got to be kidding me. As I think about this story now, I'm absolutely embarrassed by my behavior. <laughs> Completely, totally embarrassed by my behavior. He's like, no, five's bottom. I'm like, four is what I'm going to do. So I walk about 10 yards away, and I sit down, and I just sit there on the beach. And pretty soon, because he cannot not sell it, right? He comes over, he's like, okay, I'll take four. So then I give him a $5 bill, and he smiles, and I smile, and we all get in on the joke, right? This isn't a case of God trying to figure out how little God can offer us to make us interested in the deal. God starts with what many would call a very strong offer. And even though I said it's a negotiation, it's really not a negotiation. God's like, here's the offer. Here, here's the offer. Take it or leave it. There's nothing to negotiate because I've given you the best. What? The offer is right there, and it's God acting first. Paul, the Saint Paul, will sharpen it and say that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And as we think about God giving first, Seriously, how can we not take the deal? This is what I don't understand. How, how would we not take the deal? How would we not take the deal? And then secondly, how would we not be eternally grateful that we were offered the deal? I mean, we talk about a good deal that we get if we buy a new vehicle. And we're like, oh, wow, I got this great price, you know, and, uh, I bought a gallon of milk. I got the guy down 50 cents. I don't know, you know, maybe milk's important to you. How would we not be eternally great? How would we not talk about this deal? And how would we not view those who haven't yet taken the deal with a great deal of compassion and urgency? What if we as a church, rather than brokering in the opinion of the day, what if we brokered in the reality that we've taken a deal that is beyond belief? 
and as we're intersecting with those in our sphere of influence, how would we not view those individuals with a great deal of compassion and grace and urgency who have not yet crossed the line from death to life? For God so loved the world that he gave. It's at this point where this decidedly one-sided offer invites participation of the other side. You might say it's where the offer becomes accepted. God acts, make no mistake about it, God acts unilaterally in making the offer. God does not act unilaterally in the acceptance. Whether or not anyone accepts it is up to that individual. God, again, does not act unilaterally in the acceptance, and not everyone accepts the offer. In the history of the church, from time to time, we've been tempted to think, well, everyone goes to heaven. You know, it's kind of like all good dogs go to heaven. That's universalism. It's not what this verse teaches. It's not the totality of the Bible. Not everyone goes to heaven because they're a good person. Not everyone goes to heaven because they were created in the image of God. No, you go to heaven because you accept the offer. I go to heaven. I have confidence, not arrogance. I have confidence in my relationship with Jesus Christ because I've accepted the author, offer of him as my Savior and my Lord. Verses 17 through 19. For God did not send his world into the, into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There's two potential outcomes. It, it's a coin flip. But it's not left to chance. One side of the coin, live like we are. Condemned, trapped, death. The other side of the coin, live like we were meant to live. Experiencing salvation. And and, and we say it, and it sounds so easy to say, and it rolls off of our tongue, but, but do we really realize what's at stake? This last fall, there was a uh, story, an uh, individual by the name of Alice Siebold. Perhaps you've read some of her work. One of her uh, novels is Lucky. One, another one is um, The Lovely Bones. And, and to be sure, they address impossible subjects of, of, of a woman being raped. Those books are wrote out of her own experience, right? And she was 18... 18 years old, freshman at Syracuse University, May 8th, 1981. And she was raped. Five months later, she spots a guy on the street who casually says, hey, don't I know you from somewhere? And everything comes flooding back. She knows she's come face to face with the man who did this to her, a gentleman by the name of Anthony Broadwater. Now, Anthony Broadwater grew up in the Syracuse area. He was on the other side of the tracks. 
Um, as a young man, he was uh, uh, pretty vivacious, got, you know, involved in school and whatnot, uh, a wrestler. Um, he dropped out, actually, of high school and went into the Marine Corps and ultimately received a medical discharge because of a cyst on his wrist. That casual encounter, he's arrested. He's put in a police lineup. Ms. Siebold says, that's the guy. Only she didn't identify Anthony Broadwater. She identified the man standing next to him. And in the urgency of the moment, a misidentification didn't matter. Mr. Broadwater was charged and found guilty, 20 years old, sentenced to prison. 16 years later, in 1998, he's released on parole. In fact, he could have gotten out earlier if he would have admitted to the crime. He could have gotten leniency if he had expressed remorse. His position was, how can I express remorse for something that I never did? So he gets out on parole, 1998, but he's still labeled as a sex offender. It follows him for the rest of his life until this last fall when the book Lucky was being made into a movie and the producers are like, this is an interesting read. We should make sure that this is factually accurate. And it wasn't. It wasn't. And so they waited through the legal process, and on November 22nd, in a courtroom, second time in his life, Anthony Broadwater, Mr. Broadwater appears, and here's the words that he is innocent and exonerated. Can you imagine the redemption? Can you imagine in that moment what that would feel like? To, to have this accusation follow you your whole life? And at 61 years of age, two bad knees, not much of a career in front of you, you finally hear the words, you're innocent? Now, you might be thinking carefully, and you'd be like, excuse me, John, question. Mr. Broadwater was never guilty. You're right, he wasn't. And then you might be tempted to think, but you're arguing that I am. <laughs> and again, you'd be correct. We are. We may not like the idea that the sin we are guilty of doing separates us from God. But it is the reality of the situation. My sin, not your sin, my sin separates me from God. My sin is the greatest obstacle to spiritual formation in my life, not your sin. Your sin separates you from God. Your sin is the greatest obstacle to the spiritual formation of God in your life. It's not anyone else. It's not culture. It's us. And we may not like that message, but it is the reality of the situation. What we can love is the idea that God created a pathway for us to be redeemed. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So my final thesis, the one that allows me to graduate. Any thoughts? I mean, I could have chosen, among other topics, the holiness of God, okay? Little R.C. Sproul, woohoo, you know? The sovereignty of God, okay? Yes. The grace of God, like that one a lot better. The love of God. Please hear me. I don't deny the holiness of God. <laughs> I don't deny the sovereignty of God. I don't deny the grace of God. They are inherent in any discussion about God. But when I think with my limited brain and limited experiences about how God in a unifying way is best understood, when I think about how God exists and creates and redeems and, yes, relates, see, I still got it in there, that relational model. It's within this overarching construct of love. Love defines God. God defines love. God acts with love. God plans with love. God is even loving in respecting people who don't want to love him, which historically and presently creates a lot of problems. Understatement of the year. And yet, God loves first and last and longest. He acts and relates with love. And I believe, and it's one of the things that we're committed to here at Timberwood Church, right? Okay, If I can introduce you to a relationship to the God of the universe who loves, if I can get you in a community where the center is Jesus Christ, then I believe that that is the best thing that can be done with our time. And that in that community, the Holy Spirit will, sometimes one-on-one, sometimes in a large group, Take care of most everything else that we're worried about. Assuming we're willing to follow Jesus, bless you. Assuming we're willing to believe. I think we all want to be loved. It's almost like we were created this way. Say it with me one more time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Please pray with me. If you've never committed to the love of God, I invite you to take the offer today. And if you've been tempted to think, I'm not worthy of love, then in this moment, feel the warmth of the Spirit's embrace, saying, I love you. Or perhaps you've declared your acceptance of God's love, acceptance of his offer, but the heart has grown cold. And perhaps the best thing that you can do today is ask for the strength and the ability to love well. 
irrespective of where we're at, our hearts cry to the Father because we are created to be loved and to embrace the love that the Father has for us through his Son, Jesus Christ. I leave you with that challenge. Merry Christmas.